We are going to continue our series, the title of which is on the screen behind me, How to Help Those Who Struggle with Fear and Anxiety. Today is the sixth of our seven sessions on this topic, so today and next week, and then we'll be finished with this series. Session six is on page 63 in your notebooks if you have that. This series is going to close out next Sunday, as I said, and then there's the question of what are we doing after that. So on that announcement sheet, it tells you that two weeks from uh, today, November 21, our entire Sunday morning is going to be devoted to what we call Ordinance Sunday. And it means that we will observe the two ordinances that Christ gave to his church, those of communion and of baptism. So two weeks from today, we'll be doing that. Our first hour will be devoted, the 9.30 hour, to the observance of the Lord's table, or communion. And then the second hour, we will not meet in this room for a class as we normally do, but on that day, we will have baptism. And we have some folks who have come for baptism, and we will do that in the pool area of this building. So when you're here on that day, we'll give you instructions. It all goes fairly smoothly. We've done it before. But we'll have the baptism uh, observance, and then we'll all come back into this room, which will be set up for a celebration luncheon. So it'll be a different day, but that's two weeks from today. Now, I mentioned it to you just so you have a heads up about that. But also, since we're doing baptism that day, if you have never been baptized, you, you need to be, because it's a command of Christ. He says that those who claim to know him, who are followers of his, need to indicate that publicly by immersion in water to symbolize his death and burial and resurrection. So if you've never done that, then you need to. If you don't know exactly what it is or what might qualify one to do that, that's what we're here to help you with. So when you leave today, I stand at the exit door, I shake everybody's hands. As you're going out, let me know that you would like to know some more about that. It doesn't obligate you to anything. It just means we can set an appointment to get together talk about it, and then see if uh, you are ready to to be baptized or or not, okay? But it's an important matter. We'll observe it two weeks from today. If you haven't been baptized, see me about that. Three weeks from today, then, we will uh, start a new series. This series will be done next week. The following week, we will have Ordinance Sunday, as I said. But then, three weeks from today, we will have uh, our newcomers' orientation. And that's not on that uh, announcement list. I'm not sure why, but it's not. So uh, just uh, please make note of it. If you're someone who is new to our church and you would like to know more about us, what we believe, where we came from, what our philosophy is, why we do things as weirdly as we do them, all of that, that's what I cover in the newcomer's orientation. It's four weeks. It will start three weeks from today on November 28th, and it will be the 28th and the 5th of December the 12th and the 19th. So those four Sundays, I give you a booklet of material that tells you what we believe and where we came from and all of that stuff over those four weeks. Now, attending that obligates you to nothing. We are a no-pressure kind of place, uh, and I mean that. I know you're suspicious of that if you're new here because everybody says that, but then they come beat down your door and they say, look, you attended the class, we want you to join the church or something like that. We do none of that. I actually don't believe in that. It just doesn't do us any good to try to force people to do anything, uh, especially something as important as that. So we tell you about it, and we emphasize how important it is to do things like being baptized, align yourself with a church. 
but then our job is done. We give you the information, and then you need to pray about it, ask any questions, and then follow up as you see fit or not. So those four weeks obligate you to nothing. If you're new and you're looking for a church, then I encourage you to plan on attending those four Sundays. It'll be during this hour on those four Sundays. For those of you that are not new and won't be in the newcomer's orientation, you'll be in here for those four weeks, and I won't be with you. I'll be teaching that. Uh, Three weeks from today, we have a missionary who's going to be teaching during that hour. And then the other three weeks, the 5th, the 12th, and the 19th, a couple of our pastors and training guys, Brother Zach Hamilton and uh, Matt, our associate pastor, Matt Owen, is going to take two of those three weeks. So those guys are very able, as you know, because you've heard them before. So they'll fill in. And then we'll have Christmas after that, December 26th. There will be only one hour that day. And it'll just be our worship hour, no educational hour on December 26th. And then uh, we start with the the new year. January 9th, we start a new series. We send out mailers to the community, the whole bit. And it's called uh, The Bible in 90 Days. Starting January 9th as New Year's resolution for you and everybody in the community, it's read through the Bible. And we're going to try to do it in three months. And we actually have purchased Bibles that are laid out to help you to do that. It's 12 chapters a day to finish it in three months. And there's these Bibles that are laid out to help you keep track and all of that. If you want one of those, if not, you can just use your Bible and keep track. But we'll be doing that for three months, and each of my sessions in here will be a, a flyover, an overview of what we read for that previous that previous week. So we'll go together through the Bible in three months, beginning January the 9th. Okay? That is way more than you wanted to know, but that's what we're going to be doing over the next uh, several weeks. One final announcement, and this one is on that sheet. And that is our newcomers orient, uh, excuse me, newcomers brunch at our house. So we have the newcomers orientation, which is a class for four weeks. And that starts three weeks from today. But then there's Saturday, November 20th, the brunch at our house. And that's for anyone who's really never attended one of our brunches. And uh, it's 10 a.m. It goes to about noon. There's no program. It's just us getting to know you in that sort of setting and you getting to know us. If you have any questions for me, I'll answer them as best I can. But it's not a class or any of that. It's just brunch at our house. Okay? If you want to be part of that, let the folks at the registration table know. They're keeping a list of who's coming. We have a decent-sized list already, but we would love to add you to it if you'd like to be a part of that. All right. Thank you for your patience as I make all those announcements. Page 63, session 6 today in our series, How to Overcome Fear and Anxiety. And you see the title of this particular lesson is, The God of Hope Keeps His Promises. So, what really, as we hone in on the end of this course now, with this session and next week, what uh, the material is going to move us toward is this. That if you're going to overcome fear and anxiety, it is ultimately going to depend on what kind of God you believe in. And that's something that many of us probably don't think about very often in those terms. What kind of God do I believe in? Do I believe in a God who is absolutely in control of everything? That there's nothing that's outside of his control and nothing outside his ability to handle. That he is, to use the fancy term, sovereign. He's fully authoritative over his world and there is nothing that dictates to him what he can or cannot do or impinges upon his ability to carry it out. Do I believe in that kind of God? A sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient God. 
I think formally most of us would say, yeah, if that's the test question, I think I could pass that. I think I do believe there's nothing God doesn't know. There's nothing God can't do. But of course, the test question on paper is not the big test, is it? The test question in your life this week and last week and the month before this one, that's the real test question. Because when I get wigged out about what's going on in my life, I really am saying this is out of control. That God does not have this thing in control. And the truth is, if we're honest, all of us have moments like that. We forget that God, who on paper, if we took the test, we would say is sovereign and omnipotent and omniscient, in the test of some circumstance of my life, I forget that. And in reality, I live as though God doesn't know this, or God can't handle this. So as we come to the end of this series on handling fear and anxiety, the material is now going to point us toward thinking about what kind of God do I believe in? Do I really believe in a God who is sovereign and omniscient, knows everything, omnipotent, can do everything? Well, even if I get by that and I say, you know, I know the Lord can handle everything. And in fact, this thing in my life would not be here if it were not for His sovereign allowance. If He didn't allow it to happen, it couldn't occur. I believe that. Let's say you believe that. But then there's the question of, okay, He allowed it to happen. He's in control of it. But is it a good thing? It's one thing to acknowledge that God is a dictator that has all power and all authority. It's quite another thing to acknowledge that he's a benevolent dictator. That he's a good dictator. That he has the ability to do everything he wants, but he also is doing good in what he chooses to carry out. And so you can flunk either one of those, or both. Forgetting that God is absolutely sovereign, omniscient, and omnipotent, or doubting that He's benevolent, that He's good. And so what do I do if I'm in that situation? Now let me just remind you that all heresies about God. Heresy is just, the word is just a false teaching. A serious false teaching about And and all heresies are first, all false, serious false teachings are misconceptions about God. So I'll give you examples from church history. If you know these terms, good. If you don't, don't worry about it. But, you know, there there are things in church history like Pelagianism. There's a guy named Pelagius. And uh, Pelagius taught that we could have a relationship to God by virtue of just choosing to do the right thing. That we have the natural ability to do the right thing and it's a matter of just choosing to do it. And if you do that, then you can have a relationship with God. Now Pelagianism is heretical. And the reason it's heretical is because it's a misconception about the character of God. And here's the misconception about the character of God. Pelagians have forgotten a couple of things. They've forgotten with regard to God that God is absolutely holy. Absolutely holy. And so whatever you or I can offer up to Him is never going to be good enough. And if they had this proper conception of God as holy, they would never have toyed with the idea 
that what we can offer up is going to be ultimately acceptable to God. So Pelagianism is a false teaching, but it's a false teaching that springs from a misconception about God. Or moving forward in church history, there's one called Arminianism. And Arminianism says, uh, in a nutshell, that your choices can thwart God's plan. That our will can ultimately thwart what God has designed. Well, that's clearly a denial of what we talked about earlier. Is God sovereign? Is God omnipotent? Is God omniscient? If that's the case, then there is no one and no thing in his creation that can thwart what he has determined to do. But heresies are always first some misconception about God. And when it comes down to shoe leather theology, everyday theology, not some ism, Pelagianism, Arminianism, whatever ism you want to think about, but everyday theology, what do I think about God? It's always a matter of what is my conception of what this God is like. And if we get that straight, we will make marvelous strides in advancing toward conquering this issue of fear and anxiety. So I want to spend some time reminding you of what kind of God we really have. And hopefully it's this kind of God that you believe in. The Bible teaches that God is, and here's some fancy terms, God is transcendent. God is independent. So that means that God is outside, here's what it means, He's outside of His creation. He's the creator, He's not the created. And He's not part of what He created. He's apart from what He created. He made it, He's transcendent, He's above it, He's outside of it. So we are not, this is my last ism, I I promise. We are not pantheists. You know what pan means? Everything. So, Pan American Games are the everything. You know, all nation games, uh, all the American, all the American nation games. Or Pan Am was an airline, right? So we go everywhere. And a pantheist means God is is not just omnipresent everywhere, but He's in everything. And the Bible does not teach that God is, for example, in a tree. God is apart from His creation. Psalm 24 and verse 1 says this. Psalm 24 and verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. A pantheist modifies Psalm 24 and verse 1 slightly to say, Not the earth is the Lord's, but the earth is the Lord. And I'll just say, and I don't say this as a political statement, I say it as as a doctrinal statement. There are many people who have taken environmentalism to that degree. To say Mother Earth is somehow a living thing and God is somehow in the trees and it's a pantheistic idea. So the Bible teaches that God is above, transcendent, independent of His creation. Now here's why that's important for this issue of fear and anxiety. If that's really true, then there is no one or nothing, no thing, that can impinge upon what He does. And he says that in Scripture over and over again. I want to give you one famous passage where he does that in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. If you're not able to juggle your notebook and a Bible at the same time, I understand. I'm going to read this for you. But I encourage you to jot it down or commit at least the reference to memory. Isaiah 40. 
Isaiah 40, here's what the Lord, here's what the Lord says. A voice says in verse 6, Isaiah 40 and verse 6, A voice says, Cry out, and I said, What shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. And then it goes on, verse 9. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers his lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Now I'm going to read on in a moment. But notice God says, do not be afraid. Shout that, he says to Isaiah. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Do not have anxiety. But he's going to go on to say, here's why. Because this is the kind of God that I am. And so in verse 12, God says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord, or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge and showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. That's what verse 15 says of God as he looks at the nations and all that's going on. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Verse 17, before him all the nations are as nothing. They're regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. So verse 18, to whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold. He fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. But do you not know, verse 21, have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stresses out the heavens like a canopy and he spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught. And he reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Verse 25, to whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. 
Because of His great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. What kind of God do you believe in? And over and over in Scripture, when God says, do not be afraid, He reminds us, this is who I am. I am independent. I am transcendent. I am above my world. I control what goes on within it. I control it because I made it. I use no one and no thing to create it, and no one and no thing can thwart my plans for it. And God often uses rulers and princes and nations. And you then argue, you apply this from the greater to the lesser. If God is in control of nations and princes and rulers, how much more is He in control of what's going on in your life? And so you come then to your New Testament. And some of these sayings that we find in our New Testament about that we're familiar with have this kind of teaching with regard to God as their background. Let me give you one. In Matthew 10, verses 29 and 30. Matthew 10, 29 and 30. And here's this famous teaching on the part of Jesus. But behind it all is what we read in passages like Isaiah 40. What kind of God do you believe in? A transcendent God, an independent God, a sovereign God, the creator God. Jesus says in verse 29, Are not two two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. (laughs) Okay? Isaiah 40, you control princes and nations, sparrows. How much are sparrows worth? Jesus says, not much. Two sparrows for a penny. And yet even those I control, not one of them dies, except it be by the will of your Father. Okay, God's got it covered for sparrows. How about me? Verse 30. It's in that context that he says, And even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Now get this. Not a worthless sparrow falls to the ground unless it's by the decree of a sovereign God. And not a hair comes out of your head when you brush it in the morning. Unless it's by the decree of that same sovereign God. What kind of God do you believe in? And if you believe in a God like that, it will have profound effects upon how you handle the situations that are going on in your life. Does God know about this? Can God control this? And God says over and over, I can. And then verse 31, worthless sparrows, the decree of God, the will of your father, hair coming out of your head. Now, Rob Bailey, you're laughing because you have no hairs on your head, aren't you? And you're saying, I have made God's job easy for him. <laughs> and verse 31 says, so, you guys see it? Don't be afraid. This is all about fear and anxiety. Why should I not be afraid? Because of what kind of God I believe in. And the question for you is, what kind of God do you believe in? 
Do not be afraid, verse 31. Are you, you are worth more than many sparrows. If they don't fall to the ground, except it be by the will of your father, and a hair doesn't come out of your head, and you are made in his image, and you are his child, then you are worth more than many sparrows. He has your life in the palm of his hand. So what kind of God do you believe in? And God reminds us of what kind of God that he is. I said earlier, he's this transcendent then, independent, sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing God. No one and no thing thwarts his plan. But then there's the question of, is he a good dictator? And so if you doubt the first of these propositions about God, that he's sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, transcendent, if you doubt that, what the Bible says over and over again is look to this, look to creation. And then ask yourself, who made this? Who could possibly do this? What kind of power does it take to do this? To sustain the the planets in their orbit and the stars in their place. So if you ever doubt that I am sovereign and in control, just look to creation and be reminded. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. But then there's the second thing. If you doubt God's goodness, you need to look somewhere as well. And that's not necessarily to creation. You can look at you can see God's goodness in creation too. You know, he provides beauty in it. That's a, a good thing. He doesn't have to do that. So you can see his goodness in creation. But remember, creation is now cursed. And so it doesn't have the same beauty that it had originally. And it has all kinds of ugliness in it as well. So you may see it, you see a distorted view then of God's character when you just look at nature and you just look at creation. And so the Bible over and over again says, if you are inclined to doubt God's not his greatness. If you doubt his greatness, look to creation. But if you doubt his goodness, there's somewhere for you to look. Where do you think that is? If you're inclined to doubt whether he's a benevolent dictator, then you look to the cross. Because it's on the cross that this God who is above creation entered creation to show his absolute goodness to his creatures. What kind of God do you believe in? An independent, sovereign God? Look at Isaiah 40, which tells you to look at creation. But do you believe he's also a good God? And if you doubt that, not only he has the things in your life in the palm of his hand, but that he's doing good things with what he has decreed, then look to the cross. Now I remind you of Romans 8 with regard to that. Romans chapter 8. I say look to the cross because that's where the Bible says to look. If you ever doubt God's goodness, that what He is doing and allowing in your life as the sovereign, independent, transcendent God who made everything, is in control, if you doubt His goodness, remember the cross. Verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Then it's going to go on to say, and here's how we know that. We're going to look at it in just a second, but 
Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Let's make sure we let's make sure we get this. We know that in all things God works. That God works all things in all things God works for the good. Now if you have a King James version it says, and we know that all things work together for good. So does anybody have a King James that says that, right? All things work together for good. And this translation says, God works for the good. All things God works. Well, those may sound the same, but they're actually profoundly different. The King James says, all things work. But the truth is, things don't work at all. Things don't work by themselves. The sentence in Greek is actually the way the NIV has it, the way I read it. In all things, God works. Things don't work by themselves, but rather a God who is active in the affairs of His creation works all things. So Romans 8.28 is saying this God who made all things is active in what's happening in that creation. And what kinds of activities do we see? Verse 29. Those God foreknew, He also predestined. To be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now you look at that list. God predestined, God called, God justified, and God glorified. Those four things. And all four of those are in the past tense. And three of those four things have actually happened in the past. Predestined happened in eternity past. And called happened sometime in the past when you heard the call of the gospel message and responded to it. And justified happened in the past when you responded to that message and now God declared you right before Him because you believed in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on your behalf. The moment you believe that, He justified you. That means He declared you right before Him. Even though you're still sinful, He declared you righteous before Him. Thanks be to God. And so three of those four things have happened. Predestined, and called, and justified. And then it says, verse 30, And He also glorified, past tense. Which hasn't happened yet. But it's still past tense. And why is it past tense, even though it hasn't happened? Because it's as good as done. Your glorification, your future arrival at your destination will... All right. Can you hear okay? Your future arrival at your destination to spend eternity with the God who made you and the Savior who has bought you is as good as done. And that's why it can be written in the past tense. Now, what kinds of things could get in the way between now and then? What kinds of things could possibly get in the way to keep that from happening? Such that God's good intent for you could be thwarted. Well, there's any number of things potentially, right? But notice what Romans chapter 8 tells us. Paul, who wrote it, anticipates that objection. And so he says, verse 31, What then shall we say in response to this? 
If God is for us, then who can be against us? This is a good God who is for us. Further, he goes on. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Friend, if you're inclined to doubt God's goodness because of what's going on in your life, the place the Bible always points you is to the cross of Jesus. Because there this sovereign God came as man to do for you what you could not do for yourself. To show his grace, his love, his mercy, his goodness toward you. And if God did that on the cross is the argument in scripture. Then you can count on everything that's happening in the affairs of your life. As being the outworking of not only a sovereign God. But a good God as well. Now page 63 in your notes. You say, I'm glad we have ten minutes to look at. But I've really covered most of what's important there. In fact, look at page 64. These remaining pages really just go through example after example of God saying over and over again, I am with you. Do not be afraid. But none of those will resonate with you if you don't have something to look to in order for you to be firm in your conviction that this is not only a God who's in control, but this is a benevolent and good God who's in control. So page 64. Fear and anxiety feel so alone. Anxiety loves it when someone else helps shoulder the burden. Fear yearns for someone bigger, smarter, and stronger to turn back the threat. And when the director of a scary movie wants to really give you the creeps, the hero will be led into danger alone. Even Jesus' agonizing moments seemed to intensify because he was completely alone. No disciples were awake even to pray. If only you could have a companion, the right companion, at the height of your worries or fears, then everything would be different. And then beginning on the bottom of page 64, you see these examples from Scripture, from Isaac. And Isaac is afraid because he keeps getting into these disputes about water rights. And water is really important in the agrarian society he's in to, to water his, his sheep and thus to have food. And he's afraid. And God reminds him, top of page 65. Or excuse me, bottom of page 64. He says, I'm the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid because I am with you. And then at the bottom of 64, his son Jacob is afraid. And at the top of page 65, God reminds him in Genesis 28, I'm with you and I will watch over you wherever you go. I'll bring you back to this land. I'll not leave you until I've done what I promised you. And in the wilderness, in the desert, the Israelites rebel against God. You'll remember in the story of Moses leading them in the exodus from Egypt. And they worship an idol. But because God has made promises to these people's forefathers, He's still going to take them out of the desert and give them their land. And so middle of page 65, Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt. Go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and say, I'll give it to your descendants. And He says, I'll send an angel before you. And the story goes on where Moses says, Look, I don't, I don't, want, any subs I don't want an angel. I want your presence. And so the Lord replied, bottom of page 65, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said, If your presence does not go up, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? 
What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? So top of 66, Moses' request for the most important thing, the present, the presence of God, marks him as the greatest leader Israel will have before the time of Jesus. And so now you've got this pattern. They're afraid, and God says, I'm with you. I'm not only a God who controls all the circumstances, but I'm the good God who keeps my promises to you. I'm with you. I will do what I have said. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. And now coming after Moses on page 66 is Joshua. And imagine you're Joshua. And you've seen the greatness of Moses. He's the greatest leader Israel has had and will have until the time of of Jesus. You're his successor. But notice what God says. Top of 66. The pattern is clear. The Lord hears fearful people. He encourages them by being faithful to his promise. God tells Joshua he'll be with him. Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. The Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. You come into the New Testament. Philippians chapter 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But notice the heading there. And that's not just the heading for the outline here. That's actually in the text of Scripture. When it says, do not be anxious about anything, that's preceded by these four words. The Lord is near. Why am I not anxious about anything? Because this good God, who's involved in the affairs of my life, is near. And so if you ever have doubts, page 66, about this great promise, remember, Jesus is God in the flesh who has come close. And his mission was in part to give his his spirit and his spirit in his presence. John 14, I'll ask the Father, Jesus said, he'll give you another counselor who'll be with you forever. And so we have some questions for you to answer on pages 67 and 68. Look at page 68 at the bottom, if you would. But there are different ways to be present with someone. One way is to be physically present, but to be passive and powerless. So a ship is sinking, your friend stays with you. There can be comfort there, but the ship's still sinking. Your friend can't do anything about it. But God is not passive in his nearness. When God says he is present, it means he's doing something on your behalf. He's giving you manna. He's keeping promises and giving grace when you need it. Never passive and certainly never powerless. Then on page 69, God says, I'm with you. And then the remaining pages are about what it says up at the top there on page 69. Not only am I with you, but notice it's in italics there. I promise I will be with you. And the promise is the important thing for the remaining pages. Now this is God himself making a promise to you. That I will be with you in everything that you undergo. Everything. Now it should be enough for God to just say, I'll be with you. But God knows how fearful and frail we are. And so God doesn't leave it at just the statement, I will be with you. He says, I promise that I will be with you. And how does he make that promise? The remaining pages talk about something that you see a number of times in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. God makes a covenant with his people. He makes a contract, an agreement. 
an arrangement. And God, bending, bowing to our frailty, underscores His commitment to carry out what He has promised by making this contract, this covenant, and holding Himself accountable to it. On page 69 on, you have quoted Genesis 12, where God tells Abram, Abram, I'm going to do certain things in your life. I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. Through your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be to be blessed. And then as you move ahead, you're going to find Genesis 15. Page 70 has got Genesis 12. But then on page 71, you've got Genesis 15. And notice at the top, it says, The word of the Lord came to Abram in vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your very great reward. And the Lord says to him, I'm going to give you a son out of your own loins that is going to be the promised seed that I gave you back in Genesis 12. And then this amazing thing happens in Genesis 15. God ratifies this agreement, this contract, this arrangement, this covenant with Abram. And he does it in Genesis chapter 15. The way he does it, it's kind of gory, but this is the way way he does it. He takes an animal and he cuts this animal into pieces. He lays the pieces of this animal on two sides of a, a path. And normally two parties to the arrangement, to the contract, to the covenant, would both walk through the path as an indication that they both are going to adhere to its terms. But in Genesis 15, only one of the two parties, God and Abram, walks through the path. And that's God. And the reason is this. God is telling Abram, the fulfillment of this thing does not depend on you. It depends on me and my character and my goodness. And so God makes a unilateral contract, agreement, promise to Abram that he is going to fulfill everything that he has promised in Abram's life. The top of page 72, it says, In the contractual form of the day, God is swearing to Abraham that he will keep his word. And as part of this whole arrangement, there was a smoking pot that symbolized how God himself would accept dire consequences if the contract was broken. And it wasn't long before it is indeed broken. Abram's descendants reject the Lord, follow God's, but God had sworn to make good on his promise which he does when Jesus pays the penalty for such insurrection on the part of unbelieving people. Then lastly, on page 73. You already know you've received and you, you have received the updated and better version of the covenant. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant, Jeremiah 31. And he's made that new covenant. After the supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. The new covenant God has made with you is better than the one that he's made in the past. God will forgive and not remember sin, says Jeremiah. The contract is eternal rather than temporary. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, you see it there. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are always yes in Christ. 
And so the character of God, given in the Old Testament, where he swears on oath, I promise to carry through with this. His word as God should be good enough, but he knows our frailty. And so he says, I'm going to make sure this happens. I'm going to give you a token of the fact that it's going to happen. He does that to Abraham. He's done that for us in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and the new covenant that that sacrifice represents. And so I say to you, if you ever doubt the greatness of God, look to his creation. And if you ever doubt the goodness of God, look to the token of his covenant with you in Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's why every time we observe the Lord's table in communion, we are reminded of the words of the Lord Jesus. This is the new covenant in my blood. Now that's available to every one of you. We're going to bow in just a moment. We're going to thank God that he's the kind of God that he is. Remember I said at the beginning, the question for fear and anxiety is going to be, what kind of God do you believe? Do you believe in this omniscient, transcendent, sovereign, omnipotent God? Do you also believe that this God is good? He has shown his goodness and his greatness both coming together in the cross of Calvary in Christ. And so we're going to bow and we're going to thank him for that. We're going to commit the events of our lives, things that have been happening this past week, things unknown to us that are going to happen this week. Lord, I will not be afraid because of the kind of God you are. Everything that happens to me is in the palm of your hand. For those of you that have never come to this God, as I describe him, this may have sounded foreign to you. Is God really like that? Can it really be that good? Can God really be both that great and that good? And I'm proclaiming to you the good news of Jesus Christ. That this good God who created the world by the power of his, his own word has come to do for you what you could not do for yourself on the cross. He paid the penalty in full, past, present, future, for your sins. And he invites you to have a relationship with him, this good God, because of this marvelously, infinitely good thing that he did on the cross on your behalf. How do you do that? You pray and you ask him. And you say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus paid the penalty for my sin. I ask you to forgive me. And I want to give my life to you. Teach me your way, I'll follow you. You say that in your own words to God. He who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for this reminder of the kind of God that you are. And the fact that our fears and our anxieties, our worries, are all tied to, like every false understanding of truth, they're all tied to our conception of you. And so, Lord, help us to have an accurate, an absolutely accurate, accurate view of who you are. We can have that accurate view because you have revealed yourself. You've made yourself known. You've shown that you are a mighty God in the creation itself. And so, in general revelation, you've made known things about yourself and your might, your power. But then in your word, you have specifically made additional information known about the kind of God that you are. And you over and over again point us to creation whenever we may be inclined to doubt that you really know what's going on, that you're really in control of what's happening in our lives. Then, Lord, you could be a great God in control of all that happens and not be a good God. 
And there are times, Lord, where we sin because we doubt your goodness. And we wonder, we doubt whether or not you really have good things in store for us in the midst of the difficulties we're enduring. When that happens, your word tells us to look to the cross where God became man to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And as I look at the cross and I see the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ there on my behalf, in no way am I able to doubt your goodness toward me. I see your infinite goodness hanging on the cross of Calvary. And so, Lord, I want to repent and confess my doubt. And thank you for the cross, which renews my absolute trust in the goodness of your loving heart. And I pray for anyone here who has never come to you through the Lord Jesus Christ, that today they have heard the good news that Jesus Christ, because of his goodness, has endeavored to do and has accomplished what is necessary for our relationship with you. And that they can have it for the asking. And I pray that they are asking right now. Go with us this week, Lord, with a renewed understanding or a reminder in our understanding of who you are, how great you are, and how good you are. And perhaps even before we get home today, there will be something that will befall us, some news that we will hear that will cause us to immediately doubt, Lord, help us to remember. And tomorrow when we go to work and when we're dealing with our families and our, our, our siblings, our children, our spouses, or we go into our neighborhoods, whoever we're dealing with, whatever we're dealing with, help us to remember you're great and you're good. You have made all things and you love those that you have called unto yourself through Jesus. Go with us this week. Help us to serve you in ways that we were not able this past week because we had forgotten these marvelous truths that you teach us about yourself. Bring honor to yourself through us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.